0: What's up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon, and today we're going to be taking a close look at the Securities and Exchange Commission's proposed rule on climate disclosure. The SEC recently extended the comment period for this rule, so I invited Jamie Gamble, a managing director at PwC, to join me on the show. Jamie has spent years helping clients build strong corporate governance around ESG, so he's here to share his insights. I'd also like to welcome back to the show, Maggie Peloso. Maggie, who's a partner at Vincent and Elkins, joined us a year ago to discuss where the SEC might be headed with this rule. So now that the rule has been proposed, she's back to help sort out all the details. And while the rule has not yet been finalized, the proposed language gives us the broad strokes of what to expect. Jamie and Maggie are here to talk about what's likely to be included in the rule and what companies should be doing now, yes, right now, to prepare for its implementation. So let's get to it hello everyone and thank you for joining me for this episode uh the topic today is going to be the sec's proposed climate disclosure rule i got a couple of great guests joining us today Uh, jamie gamble is from pwc and maggie peloso is from vincent and elkins how y'all doing today
1: great thanks for having us
0: yeah sean thanks for having us i'm doing well too you know, let's just kind of take it from the top. The SEC, you know, issued its its proposed rule. You know, what are some of the basics you can share with some of our listeners about that? Jamie, why don't you kick us off?
2: Sure. The first thing I'd say is it's 600 pages long. So whatever list we're going to give you is necessarily a, a, a summary list, and it's a little limited. But I'd say um, key things are there's um, companies are going to be required if the proposal goes through as as written to re- to report climate-related physical and transition risks and how they will affect the company's business strategy and outlook. They'll also be required to disclose um, how they do their governance and risk management processes for climate-related strategy. And then uh, a big one for everybody that they're looking at is is they'll be required now to disclose scope one and scope two greenhouse gas emissions. um, And if it's material, scope three. And I'm gonna stop there because I think um, Maggie's better at talking about scope one, two, and three than I am probably.
1: Well, thanks for that great setup, Jamie. I will start with the emissions point. So scope one emissions are the emissions that are the direct emissions of a company. Scope two are the emissions that come from energy usage. So you consume electrons. We're all doing that right now and being on our computers and recording this podcast. And then scope three emissions are emissions from elsewhere in your value chain. So I think one of the big things to add to what Jamie has already told us about the overview of the rule, and this is true of emissions, it's true of many other things in the rule, is that the SEC here has departed a bit from its traditional conceptions of materiality. Generally, under the securities laws, companies have to disclose information that is material, meaning that it would be important to a reasonable investor in making a decision in how to invest or how to vote. Here, there's a bunch of things that the commission has decided are simply, quote unquote, decision useful, and therefore they're going to require their disclosure because they think it's in the public interest. So I think beyond the specific requirements of this rule, one of the things that's important is the SEC is trying to stake out some ground to say, look, we think climate is so important, and perhaps you haven't been getting the materiality judgment correct under our 2010 guidance, that we're going to take that discretion away from you in at least some places and say this is just stuff you've got to disclose.
2: And I would say, Sean, one more quick thing is that the scope three is still within a materiality um, threshold, but it's a complicated threshold that maybe maybe later we'll get into talking about. But I, I wanted to point out that what, what Maggie and I've just talked about is a lot of, for folks who really want to get in the weeds on this, coming out of re- regulation SK, which is one part of the securities regulations. There also are some shifts to regulation SX, which is the stuff that actually connects to the financial statements directly. And so the rules also require some specific disclosure in the financial statements themselves, in the footnotes to the financial statements, which obviously is something that is you know of, of great interest to, to, to public companies.
0: Yeah, thanks for that, Jamie. I, I do want to do a little deeper dive on scope three a little later in this conversation. But for now, kind of just taking a, a broad look at, like you said, the 600 pages of this, of this proposed rule, um, what things jump out of you? As the most important, or you know, most difficult, or controversial, what are are just kind of the, the key headline stuff that really caught your eye?
1: Sure. So I think that one of the things that's really important here is that the SEC has based their disclosure regime on the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures, which Sean, you, and I have talked about before in an earlier episode. But they've assumed that companies are much better at TCFD than they actually are, right? So I think that in many ways. Compliance with this rule, if it's finalized as proposed, is going to be a bit harder than the commission is anticipating. And I think they're getting much more granular than we're used to seeing the commission being. So, for example, there are required disclosures around how boards and management are overseeing climate risk. And on the board side, they're saying, hey, we want to know who on your board has climate expertise. We want to know how your board looks at climate. We want to know how they evaluate it. Right. And and that's a, a really important paradigm shift from the way that we have normally seen companies report on how their boards are managing risks.
2: And I agree with with, with all that. I mean, I would say from, from my own perspective, the word important is a little bit of a tough word in this context, because if, if stuff is actually included in the final rule, it's required to be disclosed. And therefore, it's important because you're going to have to disclose it. Um, I think one of the things that's helpful, though, in, in sort of thinking through the relative focus on various issues is what are some things you can do to start preparing to get ready for this thing, assuming that it goes into force. And I think a couple of things. One is start early. Um, You know, right now, for at least some filers, they're going to be obligated, they would be obligated to report for the 2023 fiscal year. And that means historical data, which will be required to be in it, will have to be historical data that actually covers right now. And so you really need to start early. The second is you need to think cross-functionally. Teams from the operations part of the business, the legal part of the business, the finance part of the business, the risk management part of the business are all going to have to coordinate to do this in ways and at levels that at least for reporting purposes, they really have not in the past. Um, I, I would say connect with consultants and specialists early everybody is going to be doing this at once. There's going to be a lot of demand for for people who have experience in this area. And so it's really important to do. Um, and then this is one that I particularly talk to people a lot about, which is financial statements have to be signed off on by a bunch of people. And that's the CFO, the CEO, the board of directors and audit committee have to approve their filings. The way most companies work this now in the financial space is that they have upstream certifications. So the business unit CFO will sign a certification that goes up a chain, up a chain and up a chain and lands at the, at the, the company CFO. Well, they don't have those systems set up for uh, for climate disclosures, but many are going to want to have them set up. And so again, that's something you want to start thinking about now, because as you start thinking about your chains of who's going to have to certify information up the chain, so the CEO, the CFO, the board can get comfortable with that information, you're going to find gaps, um, simply because you have people who are having to talk across to each other in ways they haven't done before. And you want to identify the gaps early, because you're gonna have to fill them before it's time to file.
0: All right, now I want to circle back real quick. Maggie, you mentioned the You know, the SEC thinks companies are better at reporting than they really are, right? So, you know, are there any aspects of, again, this 600-page rule that are kind of sneaking under the radar? I mean, I take your point, Jamie, that everything's important. If it's in the final rule, it's important. But let's be real. Like, some of these things grab way more attention than others. So what are some of the little nuggets in there that the SEC or even, you know, market participants might not think are a big deal now but but might catch them, you know, blindside them down the road?
1: So... I think the first thing I would point to in that regard is the way that the rule is dealing with physical climate risks. Physical climate risks have generally been really underreported by companies as compared to transition risks. We see a lot of companies who have done work in the climate scenario analysis space to think about, well, gosh, if energy prices shift dramatically or demand for my product shifts dramatically, what's going to happen there? But the commission's looking for a lot of really granular disclosure that is frankly, beyond the data that many companies will have, right? On the physical risk side, there are some requirements that basically say, well, gosh, if you think you're subject to flood risk or wildfire risk or water stress, we want to know down to the zip code level, where your assets are located that you think are subject to some of these stressors. And that's going to be extraordinarily challenging simply because of the lack of data. And I think the other thing that will be hard there for companies is that it's not going to feel very satisfactory to many companies to just sort of say, hey, we found a risk, right? They're going to want to be able to say, here's what we're doing about it, right? And so there is an awful lot of homework that I think needs to be done in terms of, one, making sure we have data, of a quality that companies are comfortable relying on. And then two, thinking about what does that data really mean and what do you want to signal to the market about what you're going to do with those risks you've identified?
0: Yeah, on data, I saw, I think just just the other day, the International Sustainability Standards Board is kind of launching another initiative aimed at standardizing all this data. So. So do either of you have any insight on like how big of a challenge that's going to be for some of these companies? I mean, I, I'm guessing it's ginormous by the look on your face, uh, Maggie. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, let's get real. I mean, Jamie, you were talking about some of the things that companies can do to kind of get started. And you talked about the, the signing process up and down for the disclosure. But what about the actual data gathering? There, there
2: are two aspects of it. One is data gathering. The other is sort of data processing, handling, and analysis. And I think on the, on the processing, handling, and analysis side, it's a huge job but it's a huge job that people know how to do. I mean, companies already handle enormous quantities of data that they have to pull together. The the critical piece of it will be how do you expand what you're doing now to cover new topics? And how do you make sure that your data gathering systems connect in to all the people who have the the underlying data on climate issues who are in many cases going to be different people than had the financial data. I mean, I actually would go back to the point I made at the beginning. I think for a company to step back and look at the chain of people who have to certify it's a really good way of starting to think how you're going to handle and gather the data because one of the gaps i mentioned i mentioned you'll identify gaps one of the gaps you'll find is you may be asking somebody to certify something about how much about the greenhouse gas emissions for particular operation or plant who's never had to sign a certification that goes upstream to the cfo for a public filing before and he's going to say well wait a minute if you want me to do that I'm going to need some more resources. I'm going to need some more support to make sure I can get the level of comfort and that number that I need in order to give you the comfort that you need. So I think it's, it's really, it's a process. You're going to have to go through the process. People can handle the data they, they'll, that, that people will work out. It's really a thinking process, I think, more than it is worry about volume.
1: So Sean, the one thing I would add to that is that I want to make sure that we don't suggest to your listeners that this is just about greenhouse gas emission data the rule has in it a proposed item that essentially says hey gosh if you've made any commitments at all whatsoever to people about climate stuff which they then define very broadly to include commitments around water habitat conservation but it's kind of where the whole e and esg sneaks into the back of this rule then you've got to start reporting every year on what your progress is against those. And so I think, you know, you will see a lot from public companies who are going to comment on the proposed rule around some of the challenges in getting good GHG data. But that I think is just the tip of the iceberg, right? There's this physical risk data I've already mentioned, but then on top of that, you know, if you've got a water commitment, if you've got habitat conservation commitments, any of these kinds of things, you're going to have to be able to measure them. And and I do think that one of the interesting things we may see come out of that is companies who have made commitments because their shareholders asked them to, or because it sounded good and aspirational, who are maybe not quite ready to think about how they're going to measure those and what that really means.
2: I think that's a really, really good point and a really important one for people to focus on.
0: Yeah. And I kind of want to take this as a perfect segue to scope three and what the rule kind of asked for from scope three. So it, there seems to me to be a little bit of a gray area if you will for when it comes to materiality you know and, and who who determines it the company the SEC so so Maggie can you walk us through what the rule the proposed rule has on that and and how we're going to see our way through that that fog <laughs>
1: Absolutely. So the scope three emissions reporting requirement has two prongs to it. The first is companies will need to disclose scope three emissions if they've made a commitment, right? So this is basically, if you've said you're going to be net zero, the commission now says you got to tell people how you're going to get there, right? And then the second is that scope three emissions need to be included, quote unquote, if material, I think it's important here, and Jamie and I've mentioned this a little bit before, it's not entirely clear if this is old school, you know, it changes your voting decisions materiality. The commission gives a couple of specific examples in the proposing release of sectors for which they say it might be material. What they say is they say, well, gosh, you know, for auto manufacturers, we think scope three emissions are material because there's a lot more emissions that come from all of us owning cars and putting gas in them and driving them around than there are from making the car. And they also say that they think that scope three emissions are material for the manufacturers of oil and gas products, so essentially for upstream oil and gas. Where it gets kind of harder to figure out what they're really wanting is that they say, you know what, we're not going to establish a quantitative threshold for what percentage of your emissions need to be in scope three for scope three to be material, Maybe we could say something like 40%, but it might be something different than that. And there's just a lot of very loose language around it. And so I think that one of the risks there is that if the rule's finalized in its current form, it's going to be really hard for a lot of companies to know whether they really, quote unquote, should be reporting their scope three emissions as material or not. And I think that one of the real challenges there may well be for companies that have not yet taken a hard look at their scope three emissions and are maybe not in some of these sectors that feel obvious to the SEC, how do they think about what the various buckets of scope three emissions, both upstream of their activity and downstream of their activities are and even begin to get their arms around? Well, what do we think about that and how, how does it interact with any determination we need to make around materiality?
0: And just real quick for our listeners scope three we're talking about the greenhouse gas emissions created by end users of your products right um so so jamie what kind of questions are you getting from from clients or you know what kind of advice are you you sharing on how companies can kind of manage this whole prism of materiality in scope three
2: materiality is always a complicated question and it's always really fact dependent and so to try to figure it out Sort of to, to, to the dis- a discussion of materiality in comp- total would be beyond, way beyond the time we have here. I think, you know, Maggie really pointed to the key things, which is one, it's not very well defined. There, there's, but, but what I would say is this the commission uses a lot of the magic words for materiality that lawyers use in the context of, of traditional, what I'll call securities fraud type materiality. So, what Rule 10B5, um, which, you know, they actually quote the famous, You know, total mix of information. So, the language, and this is actually a quote um, it says consistent with the concept of materiality in the securities laws, this determination would ultimately need to take into account the total mix of information available to investors, including an assessment of qualitative factors. And that's, you know, as Maggie points out, that's tough on companies. Not a lot of guidance has been given by the SEC, so it's hard to advise people outside of the very specific context of their individual businesses, unfortunately, but uh, it's so uh, this is something that will evolve over time. There's no other way to really, I think, answer the question.
0: So when there's a disagreement between a company and the SEC on whether something's material or not, how is that going to be settled How it, or determined? You know, yes, you got to include it, or the company says, no, we don't, I mean some kind of SEC uh, panel going to be handling that or what does that look like?
1: So I think it's going to take several years after the rules finalized for that to shake out. And I think the best indication we have right now is the sample comment letter and the series of comment letters that came out from the SEC In response to their review of current disclosures in connection with the 2010 disclosure guidance. And there we did see an awful lot of comments where the commission said, hey, we're really curious about why you don't think this particular climate risk or climate risk writ large is material. Tell us more about your thinking. And I suspect that we will see something similar here if these scope three provisions are finalized as proposed, where essentially Companies will sort of go out into the world and they will try to make their own determinations and figure out how to do that. And then the SEC will review them and some number of companies will get comments that, where they'll say, gosh, you know, we really think maybe your scope three emissions as a whole are material or this category of your scope three emissions were material what do you think about that? And then companies will either choose to say to the SEC, no, we don't think so, or they will revise their disclosures accordingly. You know, to my mind, one of the really interesting things to watch, if this becomes the rule, will be how that process plays out over time, because you could kind of see this ecosystem developing where companies are able to make determinations about some categories of scope three more readily than others, and essentially that the universe of things we're looking at and the quality of the data will expand over time, and that this will be an evolving issue for quite some time.
2: And I would say that there's um, two other points in terms of the definition of how materiality will will come into clearer focus, both of which are, are very early, and so this is in a sense, me giving a gut feeling more than anything that can yet come out of experience. One of them is securities litigation, which obviously can't start until the rules actually finalized. But securities litigation tends to define the materiality thresholds in, in the clearest way because it's it actually defines specific thresholds where liability will attach. But the other one that I think we'll probably see, though I can't speak to this as of yet, is you know most large companies have spent the last several years talking to the big asset managers who own a lot of their stock about climate related issues. And so some of the way many companies are likely to start thinking about this is through their discussions with their major holders, they will start to figure out what their major holders really want to see. And they're unlikely to make disclosures that don't satisfy the big asset managers, and that may start to help clarify what constitutes material, and may help them with the in, in responding to SEC comments as well. Because if they can say, "Hey, my major holders are telling me this is what's important," the SEC's remit, generally speaking, is what information is important to investors.
0: Okay. And now, now the way I understand the proposed rule is that you know, Scope Three, when it comes to that, if companies include that in their stated goals, then the SEC is going to hold them to that. Does this rule kind of? I mean, our company is going to suddenly be like, guess what? We're going to not include it in our proposed goals because if we do that, we're just inviting a ton more oversight. So we're going to start to see some backpedaling going on there.
1: So, Sean, I think that question is more broadly applicable to net zero goals writ large, not just net zero goals, including scope three. Uh, There are a number of things in the rules, and net zero goals is one of them, where they fall into what I would call disclose it if you have it. So if you've done certain things to look at your own climate risks or mitigate them, the commission saying, you got to tell people more about it. And I definitely got a number of phone calls when the rule first came out of, well, can I uncommit to my commitment or or can I change my mind about what I'm doing? And, and I think the practical reality is the commission uh, has not suggested probably because legally it cannot <laughs> require companies to make those sorts of commitments but I do think that Jamie's point about the big shareholders is an important one here. I think you know what we have sort of been seeing generally with our clients is that, sure, you could change your mind about what your commitment is, but that might be a really hard thing to convince your shareholders was an okay thing to do. And so you know I think one of the things that's really interesting in this rule is that the commission has not only sort of said, we're kind of getting at greenwashing. Right, by saying you can't just tell people things that sound good. If you say them, you're going to have to execute on them. But they've also, in many ways, created a bit of a roadmap for climate activist shareholders for going forward seasons because they've said here's a whole bunch of things, including you know net zero targets that if companies do them, our rules are then going to require disclosure around. And so you know I think it contributes to some of this push pull between regulators and investors and Issuers about how this is all going to play out over time.
0: Okay, now, Jamie, I've got a question for you, real quick. Um, when I think of scope three and the data companies is going to use to measure that, mm-hmm. I feel like there's just a giant lane opening up for vendor risk. I mean, if you're a company that's relying on data about, you know, say, you know, automobiles or whatever, and that the data company you, you know, you outsource that to, I presume, and you, you purchase that data, if they have mistakes in that data, is that what kind of risk does that present for companies that re, that are you know filing their public reports based on data that ends up being erroneous?
2: So that's a really interesting question, um, and and it it comes both with respect to vendors themselves, but also other people in your supply chain, and so. I think this is one of the questions we're hearing people ask the most, and Maggie, I'd be interested to know if you're getting the same thing, is is if, I'm go, if I've got to go down the Scope 3 road, both in terms of determining whether Scope 3 is material to me or not, because I have to know something to know that in the first place, and then if I have to report it, I'm going to be relying on a lot of other people, and I don't know how I get comfortable, because ultimately, if it's in my financials, it's in my financials. Now, there's a safe harbor for Scope 3, at least there is one for now. How long it will last, no one knows, but there is a safe harbor for scope three and um, stuff that's going to apply early on that will make it less fraught as a, just as a litigation matter. So that's helpful. But I, I think, you know, Sean, you, you've pointed to a really good question that I don't think I have a really good answer to just yet. The answer is yes, it will be hard to figure out how to deal with that. It will pose some risks to companies that that are relying on that information to report on it. And how companies will manage holding their suppliers and data providers sufficiently responsible to get comfortable with it is something I think people are still working out.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think we are obviously in very early days because many companies are trying to figure out if and how they want to comment on this rule and then simultaneously starting to look ahead to well what what I need to do to prepare for compliance and this scope 3 safe harbor comes up a lot because essentially what the safe harbor says is if you are in good faith relying on the data from someone else then then you're okay but the rule proposal does not define what good faith is so it's raising a lot of really interesting questions around Does that mean I need to diligence the greenhouse gas emission inventory practices of the people who are giving me data? Would it be okay if I relied on data that those entities report to other governmental programs, like the EPA's greenhouse gas reporting program? Would that be good enough? Do I need to do things like amend my contracts with all of my major suppliers to require them to report greenhouse gas emissions to me? And if I do that, do I want a contractual remedy if that's wrong? And that remedy would not be a shield to securities litigation liability, but could perhaps provide some recourse for a company if their supplier has reported erroneous information. And I think there's just a lot of complexity there that still needs to be worked through.
0: So, Jamie, what other areas of this of this proposed rule, you know, have your attention and, you know, you think companies are going to have to be on the lookout?
2: So I think one of the big planning challenges and reporting challenges for companies is going to be that, from my personal point of view... What the SEC is doing here in the climate rules with respect to governance, and they've done this in in the the cybersecurity rules as well, is new. It's not something the SEC has done before, which is to say, describe to us the governance process through which you're going in order to provide proper oversight of these risks. And that, I think, will, it will again require some, a lot of cooperation across various functions and various different groups of people to get that right. And I think we will certainly get a range of the way people report about this. Some will do it in more minimal ways, and some will do it in more expansive ways. And how the market responds to that, I think, will be an important point. But I think that governance reporting is again one of these things I would expect express to people get on early because it's not going to be as, it's not easy, I don't think. And, and and you're going to have to remember, you're going to be now asking the board to certify Mm -hmm. the filing of financial statements that don't just describe outcomes anymore, but they actually describe processes. And in fact, describe the board's processes. This is not necessarily a bad thing. It's going to be more time talking through how the process works to make sure you're really comfortable with it. And when you write the narrative, and this is why I think people need to write it early. When you write the narrative. You often find that there are gaps in what you're actually doing that you would like to be different in the narrative. And so you have to go fill the gaps and make them true so that you can then write the narrative that feels to you like the right narrative for your company.
0: So you're saying that this could end up being a way to help companies identify their own inefficiencies or things that they thought they were better at and actually use the SEC rule to improve their own operations?
2: I'd like to think that that sure there's always you know there's room for continuous improvement always and you know I, I want to be careful about words like inefficiencies or or, or th- like that because for different companies this is going to mean different things. but I think that um, yes, I think the process of having to to publicly state this is how we do our oversight and do our governance is an opportunity to say, well is is the story we're telling about what we're doing the true story we're telling about what we're doing. Is this right? Is this is this something we're really proud of? Is this the best we can be? And if it's going to be out there really publicly, we want to be the best we can be.
0: And Maggie, how about you? Any other uh, you know overarching thoughts about this proposal?
1: So I think I'd like to build on Jamie's point about starting early. I you know there is a lot in here that if it's finalized is is new and different, and you know not only will require new processes and getting data together, but is going to require some level of skill building internally, right? And so at, at one extreme of that, we are starting to hear from some clients who are saying, well, gosh, if I might have to file for the first time in 2024 for my 2023 financials, I kind of need to do a practice this year. And I need to go into you know my last quarter of the year board meeting and say, hey, board, if we had to do this this year, here's what I think it looks like. And let's really start to have a conversation about what we do and don't know. And what kind of oversight you want to be able to provide on this, because I think there's just a lot of learning to be done. And that is not special to the companies, right? If you look at the range of professional service providers out there, they are all looking to upskill very quickly and to dramatically expand to the number of professionals they have available to provide services in this area, because it's it's going to be a brave new world. There's a lot of gray area where companies are going to have to work hard and exercise judgment. And the, the number of service providers that are out there to help them is not likely to meet the demand.
0: Do you think this is going to change the the makeup of individual boards? I mean, I know we've been talking about ESG for, for a few years now. So a lot of that <laughs> expertise is already kind of making its way to the board level. But do you think this is just going to put that on steroids? And like, you're going to have, you know, more board seats, almost dedicated to, to satisfying, you know, these, these climate disclosure demands?
1: So, you know, I think it's an interesting question. Jamie hinted to the fact that this is not just in the climate rules. We see this in the SEC's cyber rules too, some questions of tell us who has expertise. I think that ultimately... We're going to see more education of existing board members. I think you will see some companies where climate risks are particularly salient, where maybe you will see some more climate board members. But boards have to be able to do lots of other things to help govern a company effectively. And so I do think that a risk here is that companies overreact and you do see the creation of specialist directors. And and frankly, there are not enough people out there who meet the kind of vague outlines of climate expertise that the commission seems to suggest in the proposing release to put one of them on the board of every public company. And and even those people who do sort of fit those criteria probably aren't going to have expertise in running companies at a C-suite level, in auditing financials, in compensation and benefits, the kinds of other things that boards and board committees have to do. And so I think this will be an area where you will see a big trend towards educating boards and making them more capable of overseeing this risk.
0: All right. Listen, Jamie, Maggie, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate your insights. This is wonderful.
1: Thanks for having
0: us. Well, that's our show for today. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And be sure to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at RenewablesPod. And if you'd like a daily dose of renewable news delivered to your inbox, head to smartbrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. The Renewable Energy Smart Pod is a production of Smart Brief, a future company.